Thank you, Kevin. It's good to see you again today. We're so thankful that you're here. And again, welcome uh, students uh, from AU. And uh, we're excited to see you here in our town and um, excited for what God's going to do in your lives through this year. You know, sometimes great teachers come along who become famous uh, for various reasons. In our own town, one of our church members, Harold Jones, a teacher and coach, became well-known uh, because of his particular care and lifetime investment in the perpetual 11th grader, James Radio Kennedy, and his love for a special needs young man whom he walked with throughout the rest of radio's life taught us much, as did radio's love for others. And then there is James Escalante, who is perhaps the best known Hispanic instructor, math instructor in the history of our country. He passed away in 2010. A postage stamp was issued in his honor in 2016. He was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Excellence and inducted into the National Teachers Hall of Fame. Escalante, whose story is the subject of the movie Stand and Deliver, became famous for his work at Garfield High School in a tough neighborhood in Los Angeles known for its drugs and violence. And he believed the students in this failing school, predominantly Hispanic kids, could learn advanced mathematics, and he created a program to help them excel. And they did, with large numbers of his students passing advanced calculus classes, so much so that uh, some people thought they had cheated and he had to defend their work. But nevertheless, uh, so many went through his classes and went on to be successful in life with careers in medicine, law, business, and engineering. And of course, one of our best-known teachers whose medium of instruction was television was Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. His show ended in 2001. He died from stomach cancer in 2003. But we still remember, do we not, his gift for teaching young children whom he loved, and he spent a lot of time studying academically uh, how to teach and how to uh, learn how children think. And Mr. Rogers was profound in his simplicity and uh, with a scripted show that taught us all of the need to slow down. And you recall his shows began with a caution light, slow down, and then that slow, deliberate change of clothes to the sweater and the tennis shoes. That was all part of his teaching us to slow down, uh, to listen, and to learn, and to process. Great teachers have a way of gleaning material that we need, summarizing it, and making it easy to digest, perhaps through summary, through simplicity, through stories, through actions, through making us feel certain things, through word pictures, etc. It's truly a great teacher, a great gift in life when you encounter a great teacher, and I remember some that have imprinted my life down to this day. You know, some of the greatest teachers uh, do stand the test of time, which certainly applies to the teachers we find in the Bible, in Scripture, whose words and thoughts have survived from two to 3,000 years. And in reading their writings and hearing their stories, I find myself sometimes forever marked by some teaching that I find that becomes indelibly etched upon my mind and on my heart. 
through certain statements they make, sometimes I come in an instant to see everything better and more clearly in some way they summarize. For those of you who know me and have listened to me for almost uh, 18 and a half years now, you know that one of those statements is sort of my life verse now, Revelation 21.5, right? Behold, I am making everything new. And it transformed how I saw the entire Bible and the whole story of the gospel and what God is doing. Well, there's another sort of summary statement. There are many, but there's another one that's come to mean a lot to me because it says so much, I think, that needs to be heard in our culture about our unique faith. And I think it should become a memory verse as well known to us as John 3, 16. It's a statement that will help us personally as followers of Jesus. It's a statement that will help us teach and uh, shape others and help others as we carry out our teaching ministry as a church, week in and week out. And so I want to visit this verse with you today as we're sort of beginning a new semester of of teaching in our church. I finished a series recently. I'll start another one in September. But we have a whole ton of classes starting. Sunday school classes have picked back up. People have returned. We are starting the Wednesday night classes. We have the big ladies' Wednesday Bible study. We're about to have the, the mentoring classes going on. And so, I want to talk about a verse today and a message entitled, In Summary, in which we think about our teaching as a church and some big themes that we want to always emphasize with people wherever we're teaching, whether it be from children to senior adults. And so, we find the verse in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. I asked Chase to read the first 10 verses. So, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 10, 14. And I just have two big points I want to make today as we talk about in summary. So many of you teach in our church. Many of you are about to teach a class to become a mentor. Some of you are new to some of the areas of our church where you're teaching. So these are big things that we want to emphasize and continue to, to pour into the lives of people. Hebrews 10 verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, For by one sacrifice... He is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Would you read that out loud with me if you have a Bible before you or on your, on your phone? Or, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. You know, the book of Hebrews in the Bible was written primarily to Jews who had become followers of Jesus, probably in the second generation after Jesus' ministry. They were not eyewitnesses like the original disciples, but they had heard of Jesus and they had responded to the message of Jesus. The writer himself tells us that in Hebrews 2 verse 3. And he says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So others heard him directly. They conveyed it to us. And I'm writing to you who have placed your faith in Jesus based upon that testimony. You know, these Christians had been facing some persecution. They had been facing pressure, perhaps from their neighbors and their families and where they lived. And so some of them were being tempted, it seems, to return to Judaism, to leave Christianity and go back to Judaism. They were familiar with the Jewish system of religion, the Jewish sacrificial system, the temple. And so the writer of Hebrews, who is unnamed, he draws upon that old system that they know so well, and he compares it to the work of Jesus, of what has taken place since Jesus has come, 
and to show them that what they discovered in the coming of Jesus was far superior to the old Jewish sacrificial structure. Don't leave what you have because you're leaving the grace of God. And so he challenges them in this letter to be faithful. Jesus had fulfilled that to which the Old Testament had pointed. He had eclipsed it. And what Jesus came to do was now for the whole world. He had done something for the whole world. And so in looking at these, this verse, there are basically, again, two great themes that it summarizes that we want to hold forth regularly as a church in our teaching at all levels because it is central and it is missed and misunderstood by so many. So what is this verse conveying to us? Well, first of all, it is conveying to us the gift for all. It is about a gift. And what is central for us is that, and we want to keep sharing with the world, is that in Jesus Christ, God has provided a gift. And that's a huge word. Capitalize the word gift. A gift for the entire human race. Gift should always be central in our teaching. We cannot talk about the gift too much because the human nature, our human nature, rebels against this idea of it being a gift. But the Bible clearly says the only way people are ever going to have eternal life is to understand the nature of this being a gift. And so that passage says, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect, how long? Forever. For one by, by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. And so we notice that he did this. He has made perfect forever by one sacrifice. He's the one that gave the sacrifice. At this point in the letter of the Hebrews, the writer again is summarizing then in one statement so much of the argument he's been putting forth up to this point. His argument has been that everybody knows that something is wrong in the human race. We're messed up. Something is not right with us. He establishes that early in the letter again back in Hebrews chapter 2 in verses 16 and 17 where he says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that is descendants of Abraham, human beings. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he, this is Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Humanity is sinful. All of us know that we are sinners. The creation is broken. Things don't work the way they should and sometimes the way we would hope. And that fact is true and it is universal and it is affirmed in one way or another in almost every human worldview or way of thinking about the world. In, in limited ways, the limited ways we have of explaining the world, its existence, this life that exists on it, and looking at our imperfections, no view can sidestep that we are observably off-center, the human race. Read the newspaper every day. Or if you don't read the newspaper anymore, read it online or listen to a podcast. We are messed up. doesn't take long to figure that out. And so there are various ways that people approach what is wrong with us and how we need to fix it. And I'm painting with an extremely broad brush here in just a few moments, but just want to draw an example or two from some other ways people approach the world to point out that we all know something's wrong and we want to figure out how to try to fix it if we can, even if it's inconsistent for us to think about doing so. So we think about a view that's prevalent in the world held by over a billion people. 
predominantly in Europe, North America, and China perhaps, uh, old parts of Russia, some parts of the world, and that would be the materialistic view of the universe, naturalism or atheism. Everything just came by accident of space and time. And in this view, people want to say that our problem, because we recognize we have a problem, we need to fix the climate, right? We need to fix the world. There's, there's things wrong with the world. There's things wrong with humanity. And their problem, the problem is they would say, well, we need to think about the fact that we're just not develop, developmentally where we need to be as a race. We've come along in the evolutionary process. We've still got problems. Things are still off-center, but we're just not far enough along. There's no God or being beyond us. We're just here by chance. We're in a closed system. And so we need to learn to take control of it, improve it. And we can do that through education and science and technology. Everything in this view can be explained in a naturalistic way. And so everything in their minds who hold this view can be solved in that way. We just need to educate people, manage the environment, help succeeding generations to improve. And again, this view finds great footing in Europe and North America today. But I just want to say that it is a hopeless view. Because in the end, everything and everyone returns to nothingness when the universe winds down. And all know the universe will wind down. All becomes ultimately, as the prophet bird says over and over again in Poe's famous poem, nevermore. Nevermore, 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 in that very dark poem. And furthermore, if you believe this view, there is no ultimate reason, no ultimate moral reason to try and improve anything. If you hold this worldview, there is no ultimate real right or wrong. Why should anyone care about the climate? If you take this view seriously, it's a sad view. You know, Richard Dawkins, a British evolutionary biologist and a popular atheist of recent years, he puts it this way. He's honest. He said, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. He goes on to say, quote, life is empty, pointless, futile, a desert of meaninglessness and insignificance. And he says, to look for anything beyond that is infantile. So honest atheists know that there's never going to really be a brave new world, though they tell us to strive for it, to strive to keep advancing, keep growing. And perhaps this is why this view is still not dominant, because it cannot answer the inner longings and the senses and hopes and pains of the human heart and human spirit. The human default knows there's more. The human default knows there must be something more when you stand at the casket of a loved one or a child who's died or when you're going through things in this world or all the things that we face. Our hearts know that there is more. Perhaps that's why in the world that religion is the view that's growing in the world, around the world, much more so than atheism. The world goes more, grows more, more religious. And then there's another view, just touching upon these in broad brush today. There'd be like uh, what we call moralistic views. And these views recognize, again, something's wrong with us, something's wrong with the world, and believe that much of the pain in the world can be tied back to the fact that something is wrong because we commit wrong. We agree with that part of that in some ways. And some of these systems are theistic. They believe in a personal God, some not. 
And in some of those systems, we overcome what is wrong through some path of work like the pillars of Islam, which is a theistic view. We hope to morally achieve an eternal existence in some heaven in the theistic views. But then there are the Eastern worldviews, Hinduistic religions, which there are many in India, or in the offshoot Buddhism. They recognize things are wrong. You hear it a lot in the word that's bantied about in our culture of karma. And we overcome what is wrong through endless cycles of reincarnation until we get it right to escape the, the bad cycle of bad karma, our bad deeds, all those things of the will that were wrong. And they carry over to the next life, determine what you will be in the next life. But in some of those systems, to get off of that karmic quill, you find release through understanding that everything that we have as far as desire, desire is wrong. We must free ourselves from desire, do away with any craving to hang on to this world because everything is impermanent. And so in Buddhism, one can follow a path of enlightenment and be freed from the power of karma. And so in these views from the Eastern world, the ultimate idea is the spiritual is all that remains, if anything, the universal. We're, we're not individuals that go on. We are absorbed back into this universal nothingness, basically. We don't have any individual existence. There's nothing in those views that has ultimate hope for me as a person, for you as a person. Say your name, who you are right now. There's no hope in those views for you as a person living as an individual in eternity. You're just absorbed basically back into forms of nothing. There's different aspects of that worldview, have different views of what comes at the end, but it's all immaterial. And some of these views in history have been wedded to sacrifices to the gods or offerings to the gods in hopes to assuage the powers and find acceptance. And many of the religions of the ancient Greeks and Romans offered sacrifices to the gods. And in Judaism, as we've read, God established a sacrificial system himself. But what God established in Judaism served a different purpose, which I'll return to in a moment. And so when you boil it all down, the human race universally knows something is wrong and believes that somehow through our efforts, our reformation, our sacrifices, we can fix the world, advance humanity, save the race, at least for a while, or return everything to spiritual equilibrium. But this one verse we read this morning encapsulates a different story, a unique story that stands alone among all the views of the human race. This view stands alone. It is the best story that gives the best explanation for all things. C.S. Lewis, the great scholar and of literature at England in Oxford, he said, I believe in Christianity. He was converted out of atheism. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Lewis said, by understanding the gospel, it's helped me see everything else now. And it does. And so what is this story that begins in Genesis and goes to Revelation that's being summarized in this one verse in Hebrews chapter 10? Well, it's a simple story that 
the universe was created by a glorious, eternal God who exists in ex eternal fellowship and love, His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We baptized people earlier in the name, one name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's been love for eternity among the Trinity. And this great God decided to breathe the creation into existence. He made the universe. He made this planet. It seems uniquely habitable and created all life with human beings being his highest creation, made in his image to have fellowship with him. That's why every one of you in this room and listening online, you are a special person. You're special because you're made in the image of God. You have value. You have worth. And the story goes on to teach that we sinned, and we still do, and brought ourselves in the world into a state of brokenness. We've broken fellowship with God, and we brought ourselves into conflict with our Creator. And this Creator is not only loving, He is holy, He is pure, He is just. He will not tolerate sin. He loves us, but He will maintain His judgment, uphold His justice. And that's why Moses wrote in Exodus 34 long ago, God says, I will in no way just clear the guilty. I'm not just going to wipe it out because I can't just overlook it. But the rest of the story is then how God chose to provide a way to give us a gift for salvation without compromising himself. And so in the Old Testament, he gave the Jews the sacrificial temple where animals were sacrificed daily for sins. Once a year, a sacrifice was done for the whole nation. But God told them, even in the Old Testament, these sacrifices won't accomplish what ultimately needs to be accomplished. They point to something else. And so as Chase read out of Hebrews 10 this morning, if you go back there in verses 5 through 7, we see the writer quoting Psalm 40, written perhaps a thousand years before Jesus. In Psalm 40, I mean, uh, in, in Hebrews 10, verse 5, quoting Psalm 40, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That didn't ultimately satisfy God. But a body you prepared for me. It was a body God prepared that was going to satisfy. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. It was prophesied, I have come to do your will my God, Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him, this one who's coming, the sin of us all. And that was written 700 years before Jesus came. So all that system God set up of sacrifice was pointing to the one sacrifice that he would accept. And that sacrifice was one that he would prepare, he would offer, and he would take the sin upon himself and pour out his wrath upon himself and his son that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. What a gracious God he is. And now that Jesus has died and risen, those who repent of their sin and trust in him, we are made or we're declared, as this text says, perfect forever. By this one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. He's talking about your standing before God. There is no trying to be saved, but there is trusting. It is a gift, a pure gift. And when one trusts in Christ, his or her sin is counted as paid for by that death of Jesus. He died in our place. He was tempted like us, but he, he never sinned. And so the second part of that is when I trust in him, his righteous record of never sinning 
is counted for me. This same book of Hebrews talks about him being tempted in every point like us, yet without sin. And so when you trust in him, you have eternal life. It's a gift. And so in that eternal life, we will continue ultimately as ourselves, as perfected souls, resurrected beings, body and spirit, as we have seen in the past couple of weeks preaching on heaven. And this is a gift for all of eternity. Paul says Jesus came to do this for the Jew and for the Gentile. That's the two big divisions of the human race. You know, you and I are sitting here this morning, and we're the beneficiaries of the Western tradition. It's being forgotten by a lot of people today, but we are the beneficiaries of that. We were just born into it. And all of that began when the Apostle Paul came over from Asia to Europe to an ancient city called Philippi and shared the gospel with a woman by the riverbank named Lydia, and she became a Christian. He got arrested, thrown in jail, an earthquake came, and the guy, jailer, the jailer guarding them came, and he was afraid and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And, you know, that began a series of changes. That message went westward that shaped the world, shaped who you are, who we are. We're so indebted to that. It shapes, even to this day, our tradition. And that gift is still available to anyone who will call on Christ to be their Savior and their Lord and to receive him, to receive the gift. It goes from person to person, message to you. You've got to receive it. The gift, a gift doesn't become yours till you receive it. And you receive it by faith, just admitting that you're a sinner. You need to be reconciled to God. You believe what Christ did was for you. And you want to be made perfect so you can be, have standing with God. How do you get to be perfect? Because you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. You're only perfect by trusting in Jesus. His perfection is counted as yours as far as your legal standing. What a wonderful truth that is to know. But then... Wrapping this up very quickly, there's another thing in this verse I want you to see. Go back to it with me. The second point is the continual power. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. And then it says, those who are what? Being made holy. Those who are being made holy. We get a new standing in this gift, made perfect forever. But we're being made holy. You see, God in our story comes when we trust in Jesus, and he is united to us. The Spirit of God lives within us. We're in union with God. And he begins a process of transformation. And he begins to walk with us throughout life as our best friend. Do you have a best friend? You know, one of the things we're finding, particularly with young men in our culture today in the studies, is there's a whole generation of lonely men friendless men, people coming out of so many broken backgrounds. Seems like we're lonely. But God says, I'll come and save you and be with you, and you'll never be lonely again. And I'll be your guide. I'll be the one who's always out ahead of you to bless you. I'll always provide for you and make a way for you in life. And that truth is contained in that summary phrase, those who are being made holy. The word holy means set apart unto God. 
to be transformed to be like God in our character. It's a process we're going through now. And so God begins to mold us, honoring our personalities as individuals, but he begins to mold us to have character like his. And in that work, he lives in us to bless us as we walk with him. He even takes our problems and our failures and our trials in life and our heartaches, and he weaves them into this story of transformation, of making us new. And he will never stop what he is doing in your life as a Christian until he finishes it. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it forth to the day of completion. As I look back on my life now that I'm in my sixth decade, I can tell you and many others in this room as well, story after story of God's faithfulness. He has led me, strengthened me, encouraged me, corrected me, providentially moved in my life at strategic moments, answered specific prayers, and changed me and continues to change me because I have a long way to go. But I know that I'm perfect forever in his sight, and he'll finish what he has started. And so that means in our teaching, we're always sharing a great message of hope. There is the gift of eternal life, and there is the real hope to begin anew, a real hope to build life differently, to overcome a past that has wounded us greatly, sometimes that we did not ask for, a painful situation we happened to be birthed into. We didn't ask for these things, and we're hurt by it, but he wants to start over in our lives, and he's been there all along. He wants to adopt you as his child he will work to heal your heart, lift your broken spirit, renew broken relationships, save marriages, lift us out of depression as the choir was singing earlier, speaking the name of Jesus, to overcome loneliness, to give you a future that is beautiful in spite of the difficulties that we will have in this life because this world is imperfect. And I want to ask you in this room and online, if you come to that point of realizing what this verse teaches is what you need. You need standing with God because you're a sinner. You need hope. You need forgiveness. We'll call on Christ, and he will immediately make you perfect forever as far as you're standing. And trust that in that you enter into a relationship with a living God who's going to be in union with you, to walk with you down through the quarter of life into glory. And I encourage you today as we sing, maybe just breathe a prayer and call on Christ to be your Savior or see one of our pastors, Chase, or me or Andrew Evans, the one that we're baptizing. I think Pastor Bill's out of town uh, today. Uh, Pastor Kevin, our worship leader, will be here. Maybe you need to take steps today to follow Christ in baptism or unite with our church. You finish the membership class, you're going to take that step. But I want to ask you who are in our church already to make this commitment today that you will be a person who wants to teach these things. Two big things I've given you is not difficult, right? In our classrooms, teach it. But listen, in your own personal individual lives, teach it. Because you never know the difference you're going to make in the world with one life. In the late 1800s, there was a very wealthy young man small stature, very bright in England, come from a 
family with standing in power named William Wilberforce. He got elected to Parliament at a very young age. He was not a Christian. He'd been exposed to it somewhat. But he liked to party. He was in lots of different clubs. He had lots of money. He could live any way that he wanted to live. But God began to work in his heart somewhat. He had some questions, and so he took a vacation one year in, uh, I said 1800, it was 1784. He took a vacation and uh, went on a trip in Europe riding in a buggy uh, with a man named uh, William Milner. And uh, it changed his life um, as he went with William Milner because William Milner was uh, an intellectual in Great Britain. He was the uh, a mathematician. He was the president of Queen's College, and he was the Lucasian professor of mathematics, which was the same seat that Isaac Newton held. He was a really, really big man. Wilberforce was a little guy, and they'd become friends. And so they went riding in a buggy across Europe in a, in a, in a, on a vacation, and William, William Milner began to share the gospel with William Wilberforce. He shared with him the whole trip. By the end of the trip, God had done a work in Wilberforce's life, and ultimately he received Christ as his Lord and his Savior. The guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace, John Newton, told him because Wilberforce thought about becoming a preacher, you stay in Parliament and pour your life out there. And so he did. He taught the nation of England in Parliament through his speaking. It was he who was committed to overthrowing the slave trade, and he led England to do that. It was he who led England close to when he died, this was approved, to overthrow slavery itself, to outlaw it. One little guy. He headed 69 benevolent associations. He began to give his wealth away. He led a reform of morals in the nation of England. He gave up a lot of the stuff he had been doing and repented of it and how his life had been lived, and he poured out his life for Jesus. But it was because of one man, a mathematics professor, took the time to tell him about Jesus, that his life was changed and the Western world was changed because of Wilberforce. And so I just want to challenge us as believers in this room to realize the power of your witness. And how we witness is very simple. We talk about the gift. What is the gift? And not only is there gift, but in the name of Jesus, there is power. Call on him.